4. Resistance and Triumph in Germany In contrast to Great Britain, the German-speaking countries were predictably highly resistant to the spread of Smithian views. They had been ruled ever since the late 16th century by Cameralism. Cameralists, named after the German royal treasure chamber, the Kammer, propounded an extreme form of mercantilism, concentrating even more than their confrères in the West on building up state power and subordinating all parts of the economy and polity to the state and its bureaucracy. Whereas mercantilist writers were generally pamphleteers scrambling for some particular form of state advantage, the Cameralists were either bureaucrats in one of the 360 tyrannical German states, or else university professors advising the princes and their bureaucracy how best to maximize their revenue and power. As Albion Small put it, to the Cameralists, the object of all social theory was to show how the welfare of the state might be secured. They saw in the welfare of the state the source of all other welfare. Their key to the welfare of the state was revenue to supply the needs of the state. The whole social theory radiated from the central task of furnishing the state with ready means. As professors, the Cameralists wrote lengthy tomes cataloging various parts of the economy and the plans the government should make for each of these parts. The Cameralists lauded virtually all forms of government intervention, sometimes to the point of a collectivist welfare-warfare state. They could scarcely be called economists, since they had no notion of regular economic law that could reach beyond or nullify the plans of state power. The first major Cameralist was Georg von Obrecht, 1547-1612, son of the mayor of Strasbourg, who went on to be a famous professor of law at the university in that town. His lectures were published posthumously, 1617, by his son. In the next generation, the one important Cameralist was Christoph Besold, 1577-1638, born in Tübingen and later a highly influential law professor at the University of Tübingen. Besold wrote over ninety books, all in Latin, of which the Synopsis Politicae Doctrinae, 1623, was the most relevant to economics. Another influential Cameralist of the early 17th century was Jacob Bornitz, 1570-1630, a Saxon who was the first systematizer of fiscal policy and who urged close supervision of industry by the state. Another contemporary, who, however, wrote later, in the middle of the 17th century, was Caspar Clock, 1584-1655, who studied law at Marburg and Cologne, and later became a bureaucrat in Bremen, Minden, and, finally, in Stolberg. Clock published the most famous Cameralist work to that date, the Tractus Juridico-Politico-Polemico-Historicus de Irario. The most towering figure of German Cameralism came shortly thereafter. 
Veit Ludwig von Seckendorf, 1626-1692, who has been called the father of cameralism, was born in Erlangen and educated in the University of Strasbourg. He went on to become a top bureaucrat for several German states, beginning with Gotha, during which he wrote Der Teutscher Furstenstadt, 1656, this book, a sophisticated apologia for the German absolutism of the day, went through eight editions and continued to be read in German universities for over a century. Zeckendorf ended his days as chancellor at the University of Halle. During the late 17th century, cameralism took firm hold in Austria. Johann Joachim Becker, 1635-1682, born in Speyer, and alchemist and court physician at Mainz, soon became economic advisor to Emperor Leopold I of Austria, and manager of various state-owned enterprises. Becker, who strongly influenced Austrian economic policy, called for state-regulated trading companies for foreign trade and a state board of commerce to supervise all domestic economic affairs. A pre-Keynesian, he was deeply impressed by the income flow insight that one man's expenditure is, by definition, another man's income and he called for inflationary measures to stimulate consumer demand. His well-known work was Politischer Diskurs, 1668. Schumpeter described Becker as brimming over with plans and projects, but some of these plans did not pan out, as Becker ended up fleeing from the wrath of his creditors. Apparently, his own consumer demand had been stimulated to excess. Becker's brother-in-law, Philip Wilhelm von Hornig, 1638-1712, was another Mainzer who became influential in Austria. He studied at Ingolstadt, practiced law in Vienna, and then entered the government. His Austrian chauvinist tract, Österreich über alles, wann es nur will, Austria over all if she only will, 1684, proving highly popular. Von Hornig's central theme was the importance of making Austria self-sufficient, cut off from all trade. A third contemporary German cameralist in Austria was Wilhelm Freiherr von Schröder, 1640-1688. Born in Königsberg and a student of law at the University of Jena, Schröder also became influential as an advisor to Emperor Leopold I of Austria. Schroeder managed a state factory, was court financial counselor in Hungary, and set forth his views in his Fürstliche Schatz und Rentkammer, 1686. Schroeder was an extreme advocate of the divine right of princes. His cameralism emphasized the importance of speeding the circulation of money and of having a banking system that could expand the supply of notes and deposits. The system of cameralism was set in concrete in Germany by the mid-18th century work of Johann Heinrich Gottlieb von Eusti, 1717-1771. Eusti was a Thuringian who studied law at several universities and then taught at Vienna and at the University of Göttingen. 
He then went to Prussia to become director of mines, superintendent of factories, and finally administrator of mines in Berlin. Eusti's work was the culmination of cameralism, including and incorporating all its past tendencies, and emphasizing the importance of comprehensive planning for a welfare state. Characteristically, Eusti emphasized the vital importance of freedom, but freedom turned out to be merely the opportunity to obey the edicts of the bureaucracy. Eusti also stressed the alleged alienation of the worker in a system of factories and an advanced division of labor. Among his numerous works, the most important were Staatswirtschaft, 1755, the System des Finanzwesens, 1766, and his two-volume, The Groundwork of the Power and Welfare of States, 1760 and 1761. Eusti, however, came a cropper on his own welfare in the welfare state, and over his own unwillingness to obey the laws of the realm. Because of irregularities in his accounts as administrator of the Prussian mines, Eusti was thrown into jail, where he died. The other towering figure of 18th-century German cameralism was a follower of Eusti, Baron Josef von Sonnenfels, 1732-1817. Born in Moravia, the son of a rabbi, Sonnenfels emigrated to Vienna, where he became the first professor of finance and cameralistics, and became a leading advisor to three successive Austro-Hungarian emperors. An absolutist, mercantilist, and welfare state proponent, Sonnenfels' views were set forth in his Grundsätze der Polizei, Handlung und Finanzwissenschaft, 1765-1767. His book, remarkably enough, remained the official textbook of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy until 1848. In this atmosphere deeply permeated with cameralism, it is no wonder that Smith's wealth of nations made little headway at first in Germany. However, Britain had an important foothold in Germany, for the electorate of Hanover was a continental possession of the British dynasty in the heart of Prussia, and therefore this land was under strong British cultural influence. Hence the first German review of the Wealth of Nations appeared in the official journal of the University of Göttingen in Hanover. The University of Göttingen had developed the most respected department of philosophy, history, and social science in Germany, and by the 1790s it had become a flourishing nucleus of Smithianism in the otherwise hostile German climate. Taking the lead in introducing Adam Smith into German thought was Friedrich Georg Sartorius, Freiherr von Woltershausen, 1765-1828. Sartorius was born in Kassel and studied theology and history at the University of Göttingen. Soon Sartorius taught history at Göttingen, by the 1790s expanding his repertoire to courses in political science and economics. Sartorius published selections of Adam Smith's works and his Handbuch der Staatswirtschaft, Berlin, 1796, was explicitly an economic textbook summarizing the views of Adam Smith. 
An expanded summary of Smith's work appeared a decade later as Concerning the Elements of National Wealth and State Economy According to Adam Smith, 1806. In the same year, however, there appeared another volume which set forth Sartorius' own views, as well as where they differed from the master. Essays on National Wealth and State Economy, 1806. Sartorius differs from Smith's odd value theory and affirms that the main source of value in its use is consumption. The value of labor, too, is determined by its usefulness, and therefore it cannot serve as an invariable measure of value, and neither can money, since money prices are also subject to the changing interplay of supply and demand. Sartorius therefore finds Smith's labor theory of value a strange and deceptive conclusion. Unfortunately, Sartorius' other main deviation from Smith is a great weakening of Smith's already shaky devotion to laissez-faire. Sartorius advised frequent interventions by the state. Sartorius was one of a great quartet of professors who propagated Smithian doctrine in Germany. Another was Christian Jakob Krauss, 1753-1807, a distinguished philosopher who was born in East Prussia and studied under Immanuel Kant at the University of Königsberg, later becoming a close friend of Kant. Krauss took his doctorate at the University of Halle, but spent a formative year at Göttingen, where he imbibed a lasting interest in economics. After gaining his doctorate in 1780, Krauss became professor of practical philosophy and Camaralia at the University of Königsberg, where he taught not only philosophy, but also the Greek classics, history, English literature, and mathematics. By the early 1790s, however, Krauss's interests became entirely devoted to economics. Indeed, Krauss was one of the first persons in Germany to acclaim the wealth of nations, which he hailed as the only true, great, beautiful, just, and beneficial system. Krauss greeted Adam Smith with none of the deviations or hesitations that had beset Sartorius. In fact, he trumpeted the wealth of nations as certainly one of the most important and beneficial books that have ever been written. Krauss even dared to liken Smith's book to the New Testament. Certainly since the times of the New Testament, no writing has had more beneficial results than this will have. Curiously enough, for a German academic, Krauss published very little during his lifetime. He was, however, a highly influential teacher. His lectures at Königsberg were always crowded, and he was considered the most important professor there, with the exception of Kant. After his death, Krauss's friends published all his manuscript writings, the most important of which was Die Staatswirtschaft, five volumes, Königsberg, 1808-1811. The first four volumes of this work were essentially a paraphrase of Smith's Wealth of Nations, substituting Prussian for British examples. The fifth volume of Die Staatswirtschaft was by far the most important, for there Krauss presented his own contribution to Smithian economics. 
Krauss addressed himself to Prussian economic policy in lecture form. The volume was an incisive call for individualism, free markets, free trade, and a drastic reduction of government intervention. Krauss began with the fundamental insight that every individual wants to improve his lot. The desire and effort of each individual to improve his lot is the basis of all state economy, like the force of gravity in the universe. But if men wish to improve their own lot, then government coercion, requiring certain actions or forbidding others, must necessarily cripple and distort such effort at improvement. For otherwise, why don't individuals do what government wants of their own accord and without coercion? And since they don't wish to do so, they will seek means of evading the government mandates and prohibitions. In all these cases, and in stark contrast to the Cameralists, Krauss puts himself in the point of view of the individuals in society subject to government edicts, and not in the point of view of the officials issuing the decrees. A charming memorial to Christian Krauss was set forth to a friend by the great statesman of reform, Baron Karl von Stein, 1757-1831. Stein said of his friend and adviser, The whole province, Prussia, has gained in light and culture through him. His views forced their way into all parts of life, into the government and legislation. If he has set up no brilliant new ideas, he has at least been no glory-seeking sophist, to have presented the plain truth clearly and purely and correctly expressed, and to have communicated to thousands of auditors successfully, is a greater service than to arouse attention through chatter and paradoxes. Krauss had an unassuming but genial personality, which laid strong hold on its environment, he had flashes of new insight and great applications, and often astonished us by his unexpected conclusions. Reading his writings, everything there is clear and simple, and at present you need nothing more. A third member of the Smithian professorial quadrumvirate in Germany was August Ferdinand Luder, 1760-1819. Luder was also a product of the University of Göttingen, studying there and becoming professor of philosophy. He was also a history professor and court counselor in Brunswick. Luder had done a great deal of work in historical and geographical statistics, publishing the Statistical Compendia, Historical Portfolio, 1787 and 1788, and Repository for History, Statistics, and Policy, 1802-1805. But in the meantime, Luder read Adam Smith and became an enthusiast, publishing a Smithian work in 1800-1802, on national industry and state economy, in addition to a compendium of Smith's views, Luther provides an impassioned defense of freedom in all its social and political aspects, as well as in the strictly economic sphere. As Luther wrote in another work, I hazarded everything for freedom, truth, and justice, 
for freedom of industry as well as of opinions, of hand as of spirit, of person as well as of property. A fascinating aspect of Auguste Luder is that he was driven both by Smithian methodology and by his devotion to freedom to repudiate his beloved life work, the investigation into national statistics. For not only would statistics mislead government policymakers, but government planners could scarcely hope to plan at all without a raft of statistics at their command. Statistics is not only misleading, therefore, it becomes a necessary condition for the very government intervention which must be repudiated. Luder leveled his criticisms in two volumes on statistics, Criticism of Statistics and State Policy, 1812, and Critical History of Statistics. In the preface to his criticism, Luder wrote movingly, on the strongest pillars and the firmest foundation, the structure of statistics and policy seemed to me to rest. I had devoted the happiest hours of my life and the greatest part of my time to statistics and policy. Everything in me could not but revolt at the convictions which pressed upon me. But the current of the times flowed too swiftly— Ideas, which had entered my very marrow, had to be reviewed and exchanged for others. One prejudice after another had to be recognized as prejudice. More and more indefensible appeared one rotten prop after another, one rent and tear after the other. Finally, to my no small terror, the whole structure of statistics collapsed, and with it, policy, which can accomplish nothing without statistics. As my insight grew and my viewpoint cleared, the fruits of statistics and policy appeared more and more frightful. All those hindrances which both threw in the path of industry, whereby not only welfare, but culture and humanity were hindered. All those hindrances to the natural course of things, all those sacrifices brought to an unknown idol, called the welfare of the state or the commonweal, and bought with ridicule of all principles of philosophy, religion, and sound common sense, at the cost of morality and virtue. With such perceptive insight into the evils of statistics and policy, one shudders to think of Luther's reaction to the current world, where statistics and policy, both then in their infancy, have spread and virtually conquered the earth. The fourth influential German Smithian academic was Ludwig Heinrich von Jakob, 1759-1827. Jakob studied at Halle and then taught at the University of Kharkov in the Ukraine. As a result, Jakob became a consultant to several commissions at St. Petersburg and helped spread Smithian economics to Russia. But for most of his life, Jakob taught political economy and philosophy at the University of Halle, where, like Christian Krauss, he combined Kant and Smith's individualism into an economic and philosophical whole. Like Krauss also, Jakob played an important advisory role in the liberal Stein-Hardenberg reforms in Prussia. His most important work was his Principles of Economics, 1805. 
At any rate, under the influence of the quadrumvirate of Sartorius, Kraus, Luder, and Jacob, the Smithians rather rapidly took over one economics department after another from the older Cameralists, who were pushed back where they more properly belonged, into the departments of law and administration. Smithian views also penetrated the civil service and were responsible for the important failed liberal reforms in the early 19th century of Stein and Hardenberg in Prussia. Stein and Hardenberg, it should be added, had both studied at the University of Göttingen. In a little over a decade, Smithianism had triumphed over Cameralism in Germany. 5. Smithianism in Russia Smithianism also began to penetrate Russian political culture. Cultural and intellectual life had only begun to flower in that backward and despotic empire in the mid-18th century. The University of Moscow, the first university in Russia, started at the late date of 1755. Enlightenment ideas spread in Russia, and we have seen that Catherine the Great at least flirted briefly with physiocracy. French was the language of the Russian court, and so any ideas prevailing in France, the home of the Enlightenment, had to be taken seriously in Moscow and St. Petersburg. In addition, the Scottish version of the 18th century Enlightenment was, in a sense, carried to Russia by the fact that a large number of Scottish professionals, doctors, soldiers, engineers, resided and worked in that country. Scottish Enlightenment books were translated, generally into French, and published in Russia. In the 1760s, it was the custom of Empress Elizabeth of Russia, the daughter of Peter the Great, to select outstanding students to finish their studies abroad. As a result, the Empress made the fateful choice of sending to Scotland in 1761 two men who would be particularly instrumental in spreading Smithian ideas to Russia. The more important of the two was Semyon Efimovich Desnitsky, son of a Ukrainian petty bourgeois, and his lifelong friend and classmate at university, Ivan Andreevich Tretyakov, 1735-1776, son of an army officer. The two studied at Glasgow University for six years, studying eagerly under Adam Smith until the latter left his chair at Glasgow in 1764. At Glasgow, Desnitsky and Tretyakov heard Smith's Wealth of Nations lectures, and also studied under Smith's colleague and former student, John Millar. When the two Russian students were in financial difficulty, Adam Smith lent them money to tide them over. The two Russians returned to Moscow in 1768, imbued with Smithian doctrine, and promptly became the first Russian professors of law at Moscow University. In Moscow, the young Smithians ran into strong faculty hostility. The majority of professors at Moscow University had been German, and the Germans strongly opposed the successful drive by the younger Russians to teach in Russian rather than Latin, and even more were the Germans hostile to the two Smithians' liberal, reformist, and anti-clerical views. Desnitsky and Tretyakov each published a Smithian book in their first year back in Russia, 
Both books were largely verbatim transcriptions of Smith's lectures, with Desnitsky ghostwriting Tretyakov's volume. Of the two from that point on, Tretyakov was the more faithful Smithian. Desnitsky more the independent thinker. Both men were dominant in the political and law faculty at Moscow University, with Desnitsky becoming known as the outstanding Russian social and political theorist of the second half of the 18th century, as well as the father of Russian jurisprudence. Desnitsky also translated the great Blackstone into Russian. Empress Catherine the Great became interested in the latest intellectual craze, the Scottish Enlightenment, and on Desnitsky's return from Russia commissioned him to write a Smithian reform plan for Russia, a massive volume, the Predstavlini, which he finished and sent to Catherine in 1768. Its basic thrust was that of moderate political reform, Desnitsky proposed a system of two-house representation, along with independent life-appointed judges, serving as checks and balances on the executive and legislature. Catherine the Great read the Predstavlini, and incorporated politically trivial suggestions into her famous 1768 reform decree, the Nakaz, which was translated into English, French, and German. The Predstavlini itself, however, was far too radical to see the light of day, and it remained unpublished until the revolutionary year of 1905, when it inspired liberal reformers and was reprinted twice in rapid succession. The influence of Smithianism in Russia was redoubled by the fact that Princess Ekaterina Dashkova resided in Scotland in the late 1770s, while her son studied at Edinburgh University. Dashkova wrote proudly of her close friendship with such immortals as Adam Smith, the Reverend William Robertson, Adam Ferguson, and Hugh Blair. But despite their eminence, the hostility of the Russian state and church, seconded by most of the Moscow faculty to the two jurists' liberal views, got them ousted from their university posts. Each was forcibly retired from the university, Tretyakov in 1773 and Desnitsky in 1787, and each died early, a few years after their ouster. Picking up the Smithian torch for the next Russian generation was a German Smithian, usually considered a Russian by historians. He was the Baltic German nobleman Heinrich Friedrich Freiherr von Storch, 1766-1835. Born in Riga and educated at Jena and Heidelberg, Storch spent his life high up in the Russian civil service, becoming a professor at the Imperial Cadet Corps at St. Petersburg and educating the future Tsar Nicholas I and his younger brother in Smithian political economy. Helping to bring Smithianism to Russia, von Storch wrote in German a nine-volume historical and statistical work on Russia at the end of the 18th century, 1797-1803, and later wrote a treatise on economics in French, Cours d'économie politique, 1815. The book was published in St. Petersburg for the education of the future Tsar, a moderate Smithian, von Storch 
sensibly rejected the idea that some labor was unproductive and dabbled in a form of pre-Keynesian income analysis in his last work in 1824. 6. The Smithian Conquest of Economic Thought by the turn of the 19th century, the views and doctrines of Adam Smith had swept the board of European opinion, though they had scarcely been embodied in political institutions. Even in France, as will be seen in the second volume of this series, the pre-Smithian subjective utility-scarcity approach to value, as well as the stress on entrepreneurship in the market, continued to be prominent but only under the cloak of a proclaimed devotion to Adam Smith as the founder of economic theory and free market policy. In the hands of James Mill and Ricardo in England, of J. B. Say in France, and throughout the rest of the continent, Adam Smith would be treated as the embodiment of the new discipline of political economy. There were advantages, but probably greater disadvantages, to this Smithian dominance over economic thought after the 1790s. On the one hand, it meant at least a moderate appreciation of, and devotion to, freedom of trade at home and abroad. Even more solidly, it meant a keen understanding and a steadfast adherence to the virtues of saving and investment, and a refusal to indulge in proto-Keynesian worry about hoarding or underconsumption. Moreover, this adherence to what Schumpeter calls the Turgot-Smith view of saving and investment also meant a determined opposition to wildly inflationary schemes of expansion of money and credit. On the other hand, there were dire costs to economic thought in this Smithian takeover. Even on the monetary front, Smith had gone against his 18th-century colleagues in adopting crucial aspects of John Law's inflationary doctrine, in particular praising expansion of bank credit and money within a specie-standard framework. In this way, Smith paved the way for later apologetics on behalf of the Bank of England and its generation of credit expansion. More faithfully, Smith totally set back price and value theory and led it into a fateful cul-de-sac from which it took a century to recover. In some respects, it has never fully recovered. At the root of Smith's drastic changes in theory was undoubtedly his Calvinist contempt for luxury consumer spending. Hence, only work on material goods, that is, material capital goods, was productive. Hence, too, Smith's interventionist call for usury laws to lower the rate of interest so as to ration savings and channel them away from luxurious consumers and speculative projectors to sober prime borrowers. Smith's contempt for consumers also led him to discard the time-honored subjective utility-scarcity theory of value, and to seek the cause of value not in frivolous consumers, but in real cost or labor pain embodied into the product. Hence Smith's crucial shift of emphasis in economic theory away from consumer demand and actual market prices and towards unrealistic, long-run equilibrium.
For only in long-run equilibrium does a labor pain or cost theory of pricing take on even superficial plausibility. But the exclusive attention to long-run equilibrium led Smith to toss out the entire entrepreneurship and uncertainty approach that had been elaborated by Catillon and Turgot. For in a timeless final equilibrium there is obviously no problem of change or uncertainty. Smith's labor theory of value led to Marxism and all the horrors to which that creed has given rise and his exclusive emphasis on long-run equilibrium has led to formalistic neoclassicism, which dominates today's economic theory, and to its exclusion from consideration of entrepreneurship and uncertainty. Smith's stress on the economy in perpetual equilibrium also led him to discard his old friend David Hume's important insight, even if inferior to Cantillon's, into the international specie-flow price mechanism, and to the important business cycle analysis that lies clearly implicit in that doctrine. For if the world economy is always in equilibrium, then there is no need to consider or worry about increases in money supply causing price rises and outflows of gold or silver abroad, or to consider the subsequent contraction of money and prices. In essence, then, the common picture of economic thought after Smith needs to be reversed in the conventional view, Adam Smith, the towering founder, by his theoretical genius and by the sheer weight of his knowledge of institutional facts, single-handedly created the discipline of political economy, as well as the public policy of the free market, and did so out of a jumble of mercantilist fallacies and earlier absurd scholastic notions of a just price, the real story is almost the opposite. Before Smith, centuries of scholastic analysis had developed an excellent value theory and monetary theory, along with corresponding free market and hard money conclusions. Originally embedded among the scholastics in a systematic framework of property rights and contract law based on natural law theory, economic theory and policy had been elaborated still further into a veritable science by Cantillon and Turgot in the 18th century. Far from founding the discipline of economics single-handed, Adam Smith turned his back not only on the scholastic and French traditions, but even on his own mentors in the considerably more diluted natural law of the Scottish Enlightenment, Gershom Carmichael and his own teacher, Francis Hutcheson. The most unfortunate aspect of the total Smithian takeover in economics was not so much his own considerable tissue of error, but even more the blotting out of knowledge of the rich tradition of economic thought that had developed before Smith. As a result, the Austrians and their 19th-century predecessors, largely deprived of knowledge of the pre-Smith tradition, were in many ways forced to reinvent the wheel, to painfully claw their way back to the knowledge that many pre-Smithians had enjoyed long before. Adam Smith and the Consequences of Smith is an outstanding example of the Kuhnian case in the history of a science, 
In all too many cases, the development of knowledge in a discipline is not a steady, continuous march upward into the light, patiently discarding refuted hypotheses and adding continually to the stock of cumulative knowledge. But rather, the history of the discipline is a zigzag of great gain and loss, of advances in knowledge followed by decay and false leads, and then by periods of attempts to recapture lost knowledge, trying often dimly and against fierce opposition to regain paradigms lost.